Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we begin our fall 10-part sermon series on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, if you are new to St. Luke's or haven't been for a while, I just need to tell you, any time I kick off a sermon series, I kick into my teaching role. And so this sermon may be just a tad longer because I'm doing the introduction than normal. And let me add to that, this is not an apology. This is an explanation, because I want to give you an introduction, but I also want to address the first chapter, so that that will launch us into it. And if you're one of those who can't deal with a long sermon, just get comfortable. If you snore, we'll wake you up. But I just want you to know, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, because there's a lot of background to Thessalonians that's really, really helpful to understand. And part of the reason is, is that Many people, when you talk about books of the Bible, and you talk about even Paul's letters, there are parts of the scripture we're very familiar with, right? Psalm 23, you would know that. Genesis, the creation story, you would know that. And there are other passages of scripture that you might be familiar with. Even when you say Paul's letters, some scriptures may come to mind depending upon how familiar you are with the scripture. But Romans 1 through 8, you know, we've talked about that recently a lot. It's known as the gospel according to Paul, and a lot of people know some of the content of that. If I were to say to you the love chapter, what's that? 1 Corinthians 13, see, some of you know that. Or the resurrection chapter, maybe less of you. 1 Corinthians 15. Or what is found in Ephesians 6? Armor of God. Very good. There we go. See, there are passages that people are familiar with. And if you have a particular need, or you're struggling about something, or you want to know something, you're wrestling with something, you'll seek out, possibly in Scripture, a passage of Scripture that addresses that. And then you'll become familiar with that. But if I were to say to you, okay, what do you know about Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians? Most of you would grow quite silent, I think. You know, there might be one or two ideas or passages that you know. In fact, I'll even start one of them, one that I know a lot of you are familiar with, even though you may not even be aware of it. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. See, you didn't even know you knew that. Some of you. But one of the other things that 1 Thessalonians, and by the way, 2 Thessalonians is known for, is the parousia. And many of you have no idea what I just said. It's a foreign word. But it's like saying Advent. It really has to do with Jesus' second coming. And 1 Thessalonians mentions it, and there's a specific reason for it that we will eventually get to. But 2 Thessalonians picks it up and expands it a little bit. We're not going to get to that this term. 
But that's one of the ideas that comes through in 1 Thessalonians. But it's really helpful as we enter this that you think about in the scheme of things, in Scripture. What is Paul really trying to do with this? I mean, what's going on at the time? It's really important to understand that this is probably his earliest letter. And so some of the other letters, he gets a little deeper and he expands and he talks maybe in other directions. Galatians might be, right around the same time he writes Galatians, he writes 1 Thessalonians. So it addresses different themes. You know how in your own life, if you think about stages and phases in your life, how you're addressing different concerns at different times, right? Think about it just for a minute. See, and that's what's going on in the early church too. This is one of the first letters in the early formative stages of the church. And there are different things going on at this point in time, right around 50 to 52 AD, than there are, let's say, when Paul writes Timothy and Titus in the early 60s. Ten years later, the church has developed. Other challenges have come up. Other questions have come up. And so he's addressing some of the early questions that are coming up. I think in my own life. You know, when I was in high school, some of the questions I was addressing in my own life, where I was going to go to college, how I was going to pay for college, dating, you know, stuff like that, those are like, I don't ask questions like that anymore, right? Yeah, I hope not. Right, exactly. (laughs) And even questions that I was asking myself or addressing a few years ago that, thank God, are no longer on the horizon. What colleges are my kids going to go to and how are we going to pay for it? Those are done. In fact, now, you know, two of our children are married. And Aaron still lives with us, even though he's through college, and we're wondering, you know, the next phase of the question, when is he leaving, you know? And when is if, is he going to get married? And then, of course, some of you have wrestled with questions and dealt with questions around your grandchildren. We're not there yet. And as I tell my children, it's okay, because I'm too young. So when you're asking different questions in different phases of your life, the same thing was going on in the church. There are different questions at different times. And so some of the questions and some of the wrestling that's going on at this phase, at this stage, is maybe a little different. And so it's important to understand that little aspect. And if you want to know some of the biblical, historical timetable of this, read Acts chapter 15 through chapter 18. Homework. Actual homework from a sermon. Yes, it's true. Read Acts, because I don't want to do it now. Acts 15 through 18. So that you understand the context and the history from the Acts of the Apostles, what's going on at that point. See, Paul's just ended his first missionary journey at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And he's in the midst of Acts chapter 16 to 18, a little later, doing his second missionary journey. And he writes this letter toward the end of his second missionary journey. Probably while he was at Corinth. And you understand a little bit of what he says in Corinth, his letter to the Corinthians, because of what happened in those same chapters. So it's really good to kind of get that overview. 
Now, what about Thessalonica? What do we know about Thessalonica, the city? Well, first of all, before 315 BC, it was actually known as Therma. And one of the reasons it was known as Therma is because it had hot springs. And so it was named after those hot springs. And then at 315 BC, a general by the name of Cassander, who was in Alexander's, Alexander the Great's army, Cassander married Thessalonica, who was Alexander's sister. So he was Alexander's brother-in-law. So he, in fact, named the city after his wife, Alexander's sister. And of course it stuck because, I mean, it's Alexander the Great, right? And so that's how the city got its name. And it was a strategic and key city. Very, very important. First of all, it's a port city. It had a harbor, kind of like Harbor Town. It had a harbor. And so it was a port city. And so a lot of people came in and out. and It was an important trade route city. But also it had some wealth because of that. Not only did it have an important port, it also was on the Via Ignatia, which was the road that takes you from the east to the west. And so it was an important city, not only for the Macedonian period and, and the Greek period, but also for the Roman era, which is when this particular letter was written. And so it was a key city for the gospel because you had all this transportation and all this communication that happened out of Thessalonica. Throw on top of it that it's the capital to Macedonia. And if you read in Acts chapter 16, Paul is being summoned. He's given a vision to Macedonia. First missionary we know of to Europe. And so he goes to this important city, this key city, to share the gospel so that the gospel might spread from there. So that's part of the background that's really, really important to understand. And what about Paul? What kind of picture do we get of Paul early on as he writes his letter? Frankly, it's the same picture that we get throughout his letters. First of all, Paul was a man of character, of integrity, of heart. If you read this letter, there is so much love and care and compassion that comes through this letter. And he wasn't even in Thessalonica that long. The best guess, he was there somewhere between one and two months. And yet the love and compassion that flows in his heart for the people. And how he appealed to the fact that he worked there because he didn't want to depend on them. He didn't want to appear as a charlatan. He was a man of integrity and character. So that comes through. Secondly, he was a theologian. He cared about truth, theological truth. Here's a man that was educated in secular schools. Then he was educated in the schools of Pharisee. So he knew Judaism. He knew the Gentile world. He knew the religions. And when he was convicted by the Lord Jesus, he sought to know the truth that came through Scripture that had been transformed into legalism and came from the world so that people would understand God's design. And it wasn't hopelessness because in the Greco-Roman world there was a lot of hopelessness. And so Paul is trying to communicate theological truth wherever he went. And in particular, when he starts with the Thessalonians. He said, I want you to understand. So he starts with the synagogue first. Goes to the Jews because that was his style. He knew Judaism best. 
But then when that didn't work out after three weeks, he moved to the Gentiles. So he was able to deal with both worlds to try to get this theological truth out. Thirdly, Paul was a missionary. He had a heart for missions. He cared about the Great Commission. So much so that he sought to get the gospel out. He traveled. He went wherever the Lord opened the doors. And frankly, when he closed the doors, he still tried to work it. And once again, if you know this story as it unfolds, Paul was strategic a lot of times with where he went with the gospel, to the cities he went, and this was a strategic city. You know, it's interesting. Let's go back to Alexander the Great just for a moment. And before I actually get into this contrast with Paul about Alexander the Great, you know, I try to look at the paper, the newspaper, every morning, Sunday morning, before I come to the pulpit, because sometimes you can weave something in from the paper. And the best section to draw stuff you know, when you're, when you're uh, preaching, is from the comics, okay? It's the best part of the paper. And this is from Hager the Horrible, the comic. How many of you read that this morning? I love when these convenience, you know, the wonderful co- coincidences work out. I love when the Lord does this. It mentions Alexander the Great. Look at the sermon notes. This was already in it, you know? There's the opening scene with Hagar and this other guy who's very, you know, well-dressed for the time. And this well-dressed man says to Hagar the Horrible, I was the motivational coach for Alexander the Mediocre. (laughs) And Hagar says, you mean Alexander the Great? And the other guy says, yeah, now. You know, you need, you need to know why Alexander the Great did what he did. Not only was he about power and obvious, ha, obviously had a gift for leadership, but he had a passion. You know what his passion was? He wanted to enlighten the world with Greek philosophy, with Greek culture. So he wasn't just committed to this power-hungry person who wanted to dominate the world. He had a passion. He had a message that he wanted to deliver. And you know, it's interesting, when he was 33 years old, history writes that he wept. And do you know why he wept? Because there were no more worlds to conquer. That's what it says. Now, I want to draw a couple of contrasts with this. First of all, there's another man that died at the age of 33. And he also wept. He wept over Jerusalem because they refused to hear. God's chosen people refused to hear. He wept over the death of his friend Lazarus because he cared. He cared about people's life. He cared about their pain. He cared about their salvation. That's why he came. Because he cared. He didn't come to conquer in a worldly sense. To dominate. To coerce. To use. He came to lay down his life. To show love and compassion. 
And there's another young man who the scripture says, and he's accused of, he's changed our world and turned things upside down on its head. You know who they're talking about? Paul, Acts chapter 17, right at this time. That's what he's accused of. Because he too had a passion for people. He had a passion for God's truth, for God's word. He loved the Lord and he loved people and he wanted them to know God's salvation. And so he went out not to dominate, not to coerce, not to exercise that kind of power, but manifest the power of the gospel to change hearts, to change lives, to change the world. What a contrast. That's who Paul was. That's the message that he brings. And so he arrives in Corinth after this journey that he's been on through Philippi, through Thessalonica, through Berea, and writes this letter from Corinth. But let me tell you what he experienced so that you understand when he's writing this letter part of the context. He goes to Philippi because he's summoned in a vision to come to Macedonia, to Europe, to proclaim the gospel. When he ends up in Philippi, what happens? He's beaten and he's thrown in jail. Great start. Okay? Goes a hundred miles, a hundred miles to get away from that reaction to the gospel. And yet at the same time wants to hit this strategic city, Thessalonica. What happens in Thessalonica? He spends three weeks in the synagogue, three Sabbaths, gets thrown out of there. Spends more time with the Gentiles, maybe another couple of weeks to a month. Then gets run out of town in Thessalonica. Then he goes to Berea. And you think, oh great, you know, you read Acts of the Apostles, and he's received well in Berea. This is going better. They receive the word of God. Then people are so angry at Paul from Thessalonica, what do they do? They send a contingency from Thessalonica to get the crowds in Berea upset with them to run them out of town there. What a great start. So then he ends up in Corinth, and if you read in 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 4, you see Paul writing, I came to you in much fear and trembling. No kidding. What he had experienced thus far, who wouldn't have fear and trembling? And that's a message for us. That sometimes when we're dealing with issues of our faith, when we're dealing with culture, when we're dealing with people, sometimes we are bound by fear. Sometimes we struggle. That does not mean we still can't seek to serve the Lord. And seek to be a witness. And seek to get his word out. And that's what Paul also models in this context. That he is trying to be faithful to getting the gospel out. And he does it amidst, as we read, affliction. One other note before we launch into 1 Thessalonians 1. If you look at the beginning of the letter, Paul usually starts his letter the same way. He addresses by saying, this is who we are, and this is what my desire for is for you. So he says, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, and by the way, Luke is with them too. If you read Acts chapter 17, you understand that. 
Luke is kind of the historian. He's taking the notes, and he's part of their team. To the church at Thessalonica, grace and peace. So his whole goal in writing this letter, so they would understand God's grace, so they would know the gospel of peace. But notice who sends the letter. His small group. That's his small group. That's his connection group. I missed my cue. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Nathan was sleeping. He was supposed to say amen really loud. You know, but it was his small group because that's who he traveled with and studied with and prayed with was Silas or Silvanus, his more formal name, and Timothy, his understudy, and Luke, his companion, and oftentimes the one who wrote and took notes, who would eventually write his gospel in Acts of the Apostles. That's who he traveled with for support and encouragement, who struggled with him with the gospel to get the word out. Okay, now, with that in mind, we enter 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You could either look in your bulletin or you can look in your Pew Bible, page 1075. But the first couple of verses, we always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that you see Paul writing when he talks to the Thessalonians, and this is in the face of remember what he experienced there. Remember what he experienced on this missionary trip. Constant challenges and pain and struggle and adversity and affliction and persecution. And he said, we give thanks. I don't know about you. That's not often my reaction in the midst of that kind of stuff. I wish, I pray, I would always be a grateful person. I really do. I want to constantly be grateful, joyful, upbeat, a wonderful witness of our Lord. But a lot of times I find myself in a wrestling match. I might pull out of here when I'm leaving and someone get in my way when I'm driving. I will not be grateful. Trust me. Just ask the guys I play golf with who ride with me. And I have to constantly cultivate that grateful spirit, that thankful spirit. Because oftentimes we are not grateful. Not for the circumstances, in the circumstances that we deal with. And we're called to be a thankful, a grateful people. I don't know how many of you were here last week. Whitney Cunahan from Scripture Union was here and preached and did a great job. And the title of his sermon was The Joy of Stress. You know, I don't know if that title surprised you when you first read it, The Joy of Stress. But see, I believe it makes the same point, that when we're struggling, when we're wrestling, we can still experience the peace that passes understanding. We can still experience a joyfulness about our lives. We can still be a grateful people. That every day when we get up and we spend time with the Lord, if we spend time with the Lord, which we need to, need to desperately, that we're spending time in His Word and we're spending time in prayer and we're cultivating at the beginning of the day a grateful heart. 
Thankful for the day. Thankful for the opportunities that the Lord will place before us. No matter what we're challenged with that day. I desire to cultivate that grateful spirit, that thankful spirit. Jesus himself modeled it. Right before, and he knew he was going to the cross. And he's praying in the upper room with his apostles. And he's saying, so that my joy might be in them, and their joy might be full or complete. And we remember that last supper with them, when we celebrate the Eucharist, which also calls to mind his death, for our sake, for our sin. And what do we call this that we do every Sunday? We call it Holy Communion, yes. We also call it Eucharist. You know what the word Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. That we are grateful. That we're grateful for the gift of life, the gift of eternal life that comes to us through Jesus Christ. That we learn to become more and more a grateful people. What did Whitney say last week? You know what our tendency is? To complain and to blame, right? We have become a culture who loves to complain and loves to blame. It's our national pastime. Instead of being grateful and joyful and allow love and compassion to flow from us and to serve and to give of ourselves. See, but let me tell you how that happens. It happens when we are a prayerful people. I mentioned earlier the most well-known section of Thessalonians. Rejoice always. Always rejoicing. Pray constantly, which is how he begins here. Give thanks in all circumstances. See how the bookends of this letter work? You've got this coming in the first chapter and that coming in the last chapter. And Paul's making the same point. At the beginning and the end. And that it comes out of this constancy of prayer. That we're constantly aware of Jesus' presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit working in us and through us. That we're living this life and walking with him constantly just like the apostles did. You know, when I think of prayer and constant prayer, I was given a great reminder this week. It was really a wonderful illustration. It was not in my original sermon notes, so this is a bonus. Okay? My cousin and her husband were coming over for dinner. They were in town on vacation uh, to our house on Friday evening. And I just wanted to make sure that our entryway looked good. You know, they didn't walk through any cobwebs or anything like that. So I went out to the front porch just to check the front porch. And on the front porch, this is so cool, I see something on the wall. And I have no idea what it is. So I get a little closer. It's a praying mantis. A praying mantis. What do praying mantis seem to do all day? Pray. There you go. Right? Now, I'm not done with the illustration. The praying mantis only had one arm. I know, it was sad. It's probably why he was hiding on our porch. Okay? But if you looked at him from one side, it looked like he was praying all the time. You look at him from the other side, you don't know what he's doing. Right? And that's how we oftentimes are. And yet we're called to pray constantly. To pray constantly. We're not there to fake it. 
We're not there as sometimes Christians. That we're constantly seeking to be connected to the Lord. In that prayerful state, if you will. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Walking with his joy. With a grateful life. And it's interesting because there are times in our lives, and probably most of you can say this, that you've had glimpses of that. Let me tell you a recent one I had. When I was with my mom in her last days. I had that. I was prayerful. I was grateful. I was there to serve. And the Lord gave me the grace and the strength Night and day, as Paul writes here. To work and labor. To do whatever I was called on to do. And it was a blessing. Boy, I wish I could live all my life like that. But it came out of love. And see, when we understand the gospel. And how the gospel is to take hold of our lives. That's how we're to respond. Grateful for the blessing. Hopeful. And she was hopeful for eternal life. So that was not a concern. And I learned again about what Paul was talking about here. And I just happened to be working on this part of that time. So I was able to reflect on this gift. Secondly, Paul says that I came to you with the word and with power. The word has power. I don't know how many of you have seen this Geico commercial. There's a lot of these Geico commercials. And this is one of the ones without the lizard. Um, It's the one where this woman is talking to this guy. And the guy says, you know... Says 15 minutes, you can save money if you look up Geico. And she says, well, everybody knows that. And he turns to her and he says, well, do you know words can hurt? You seen that one? I mean, we all know words can hurt, right? But the way that this one is played out is really interesting. I don't know who has a mind like this, by the way. But they have this cowboy riding off into the sunset. And he's riding off into the sunset. This sign comes up on your screen, the end. And as he's riding, his head hits the sign and he falls off his horse. As the illustration that words can hurt. So we know words have power, right? We know words have power. See, but most of the words we hear in the world around us are human words. The words of man. The words of culture that really doesn't have the power for salvation. That really doesn't have the power to change you from the inside out. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. The words that we bring, he will say later on in chapter 2, are not the words of men. They're not human words. They're not trying to just bring a culture to you like Alexander the Great was doing. These words are trying to change your life and because of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word of God, this can change your life. This can change your life. When you take that word in. When you accept the gospel. 
That's what he's aiming at. And finally, Paul writes, in affliction. In affliction and persecution. And they would know exactly what he's talking about because they watched it. They lived it. They experienced it. They saw him go through it. They probably knew that he came there from Philippi where he was persecuted. Then he went to Berea and they heard about that he was followed by some of their friends, some of their neighbors, and persecuted there. And yet he was faithful in affliction and even joyful in affliction and thankful in the midst of the affliction. That he could pray for them and say, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that I came to know you. I'm grateful that I was there. See, most of us would look back and say, what a lousy vacation that was. I'm never going back there again. He's grateful. And that's what he focuses on. And he has joy. You know, one of the most joyful letters that we see in the New Testament is Philippians, where Paul was beaten and thrown in jail. And then this is right behind it, where he talks about thankfulness and he talks about joy. In the cities that he was persecuted. Because he understood the power of the gospel. You know, back to the comics, our other source of truth. I don't know how many of you read Peanuts this morning. But Charlie Brown's on the mound with his baseball team. And they all start gathering around. And by the way, the last frame is, I don't have a ball team. I have a theological seminary. Okay? That's what he says, because they're all debating this issue. You know what the issue is? The issue is suffering. Interestingly enough. The issue is suffering. They're talking about the power, the power of evil, how evil infiltrates our life, the problem of evil, and the problem and power of suffering, and what suffering can do or does do in our lives. And here you've got one of the little children saying, I think a person who never suffers, never matures. Suffering is actually very important. It's interesting. Then you've got Lucy. Okay? Lucy, who is the psychiatrist that will give you advice for five cents, right? Who wants to suffer? Don't be ridiculous. See, that's our world. That's our world. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to put themselves out? Who wants to stand for truth and be a person of character? Who wants to be a missionary for the sake of the gospel? Who's willing? See, that's what we have here. Some of the questions that the early church challenged, questioned, struggled with. And Paul is saying, see, this is the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of peace. The gospel is the gospel of truth. The gospel is the gospel of love. And the power of the gospel is found in the word and the Holy Spirit working through you to transform your life and make you one of these people who is willing to go out. And that's why Paul says right at the very beginning, he says, the work that's inspired by faith. See, what I do is inspired and informed by my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That what I do, the love that I share is prompted. It's prompted. It's prompted by this truth. 
It's prompted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I labor night and day. This labor is prompted by love. This work that I do is prompted by faith. And oh, by the way, I am founded on hope. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just Alexander the Great saying, I want to spread this Greek culture and then I'm going to die and there's no hope after that. This that I bring is the hope for the world. The hope of Jesus Christ, the hope for a transformed life that brings joy and love and peace and grace into our lives. And the hope for eternal life and salvation. That's what I want to bring. That's why I'm willing to go through this. Two weeks ago, I actually listened to Nathan's sermon on CD. And he actually did a really good job. It was a shock, I have to say. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But he said, as he was challenging us with the connection groups, to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord through his word, with each other in community. And he talked about the love that can come from that and the witness of our community. And he said, what if, what if we were like that? What if we were that kind of community? And that's the goal of Paul writing. That we can be that kind of community by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, I'm sometimes amazed by Paul's perseverance amidst the challenges and struggles when I really consider what he went through. And Lord, even more challenged by what you went through for our sake in going to the cross and dying for our sin. Lord, help me. Help us to seek you constantly. That we have never arrived until we have arrived to be with you for all eternity. That in this life, we are challenged to rejoice always. And I'm not there yet. To pray constantly. And I'm not there yet. And to give thanks in all circumstances. And I'm not there yet. So I strive and I seek to submit and be filled with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that that would be true for all of us, no matter what affliction or challenge we face, that we would seek to be a grateful people, a prayerful people, a joyful people, who seek you by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word and live your love in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.